every IT person I know of uses the words the business like like they're talking about God on high, you know, um, or somebody walking on water. And I'm like, you're talking about like Joe over in accounting who can barely turn on his computer like he knows what a user story is or understands agile financing. No, no, no. We have to lead. First and foremost, yeah, we get in the way of things because I, and I've always called this thing. I, if you know, if you know, Fort Fight Club, there's a movie, and in there, there's a, a, yes. a scene that's always resonated with me. And basically, in the scene, there's a business manager asking a consulting organization or a product organization whether they can have all the buttons on the interface in cornflower blue because it's his favorite color. And I have seen through 25 years of this more of those kinds of projects than I care to admit. Right, more of those kinds of Huber's projects, personality projects. I think this is a good idea. I've got no evidence it's going to do anything. Um, requirements that make no sense, etc. As an architect, yeah, hell yeah, I get in the way of those things because we've got important, investable decisions to make. And those things, not only do um, you know we not get in the way, those are the things that the the innovative architect will be driving. Right. So again. Business is about the decision what not to do. Good business in any context, whether it's technological or not, is about investment decisions. We have limited resources. No matter how large a company we are, there's still a limit to what we're going to spend and invest in. Spending that on the right thing is what I, we help companies do. What is the right thing? Well, you know, the organizations that are that, 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 that the architects I know worked for were the first organizations to adopt continuous delivery and agility and, um, you know, faster speed to market and um, not bleeding edge, but at least uh, contemporary or cutting edge technologies in places where it caused market differentiation. So again, yeah, I'm all for getting in the way of stuff that doesn't help us compete against our, you know, compete effectively or serve our citizen or serve our mission in the most effective way possible. And that's what I specialize in. So, yeah, the, yep. the traditional architect, I do, I will say there is a, a group of old school architects who really think in terms of governance and control, command and control. And that group is slowly dying. And I don't mean necessarily dying, but they're, they're, they've been pushed to the fringes. What we are now is a savvy group of investment advisors. Technology as an investment, technology as a safety mechanism for our customers. Uh, Jeff Bezos says, you know, we treat customer, tr customers like they're a guest at a party. Technology can fundamentally change that. And you know that just from banking alone. Most of, most of our, our viewers haven't been into a bank forever because banking is done on a phone now, yep. right? That's customer service, that's technology, that is architecture and innovation. And that's the first, so, so yeah, so I'm all about deprioritizing the crap and prioritizing the stuff that matters. I think that's a really good point, Paul, because you know, going back you know, five, 10 years, there was this discussion around architects that were order takers versus yeah. architects that would sit at the table with the executive as advisors 
and provide technology input. And I, I believe, you know, when we start talking innovative technology, it's important to understand how those pieces fit into providing business value. And I see that role of the architect going forward. I mean, that's kind of what we're discussing today is how do we get business value out of this? How do we change our business models to align with technology? How do we select technologies that fit in, right? Yeah, and I just, I, you know, look, 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 I have 25 years at studying this this field, and I still feel like a neophyte. Um, and it's not so much, and, and uh, you know, I was, right before this call, I was just setting up like a, a Netflix Eureka uh, server in, in an Azure cloud, just because I was having some fun with it, right? So this isn't about not knowing technology anymore. But I'm just as excited about business models, right? I, when Osterwalder put the business model canvas out, uh, me and one of my uh, close associates uh, and one of our distinguished architects, uh, Gar McCrusta, um, who you should definitely interview as well, yep. uh, we're talking about business model innovation the day that book came out. Because, you know, this is what's exciting. It's the interaction between technology and business models that make that make the average architect excited. Now, there are lots of us though, right? There are lots of the different types of us too. And, and, and it, isn't, it isn't that the one type you know, overrides the other type. This is about competencies. So what, what the historically our problem, a problem in IT, and this is not an architect problem. This is a technologist problem. And this is what I meant by the fact that we're not, we haven't yet figured out that we've come out of the back room. We don't approach our competencies in the way that professionals do. Again, the development of specific abstract competencies as opposed to going to some class on, you know, Java 15 or, you know, uh, .NET or, you know, Microsoft Azure or AWS or Google or what, whatever your specific area of technical depth knowledge might be, that we're still thinking in the ratchet and, you know, technologist, you know, ratchet and, and, and sort of, uh, what do you call those, a tinkerer <laughs> mindsets, right? If we did medicine that way, you'd have people that knew how to use a scalpel but not how to take blood pressure, right? And and know the and know the relationship between you. You know people who knew technology, and not people who understood the fundamentals of the of medical of medicine's impact uh, on human health. And so that holistic view and the understanding of the competencies that support it is the only thing that matters in changing the way that IT and the way that businesses. Uh, deal with digital uh, strategy. Well, that's a, a really great point. And, you know, I'm just taking an example from some of our discussions recently when, you know, you start to look at things like integration technology, right? How do yeah. I, how do I glue these different technologies together? And it's changed. It's really changed from, you know, again, going back five years, we were, you know, the integrations were sort of one of very different requirements and we're moving in really in that case into an API microservices world, which helps a lot of other technologies converge but as it's changing, I think people need to understand that you need the right architecture to make it work. It's not just going to the endpoints, right? It's not just, oh, I'm going to just snip out some code and there I go and, and automatically get something. For instance, we're going to go, go in a little bit with um, IoT, gathering sensory data. You know, you need to understand event-driven architectures versus maybe the retail front online, right? And so there's a whole bunch of difference, differences dri driven out by quality 
uh, quality attributes. And we have yeah. to make sense of that. And we have to make sense of that in a way that the executive team can understand, right? Well, and um, so there's two things that have to happen in the next 10 years that have to happen in the next 10 years. One yeah. is the one is the board of directors has to change. It has to include a techno a technologist on the board, an experienced, uh, deeply capable technical leader. Now, does that mean I'm, I'm not talking about a programmer on the board of directors necessarily, but I keep thinking of, of um, pe people that I know that lead truly innovative uh, organizations, people like Angela Yoakum, that is the chief digital officer for Navon Health. Right. Um, absolutely visionary leader. She's the kind of person that needs to be on a board of directors. Um, because we need to hire executives that understand how to prioritize and un and understand the relationship between technology. We're, we're still kicking out uh, or, or moving out a, a group of executives that think technology is a back of the house kind of thing and they don't need it. And so fundamentally, the board structure and executive structure has to change. The other thing that has to change, though, is us, right? We need to begin to professionalize our knowledge bases. I have read 10 Medium and ISA articles, um, it, it, both that give different opinions about the use and or not use of microservices. And you know this well because you teach this in integration, being one of the thought leaders in integration yourself. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to Gregor about these things. I've talked to other thought leaders about these things. But I've read 10 articles, 10 for using microservices for everything. And 10 that say, mm, yeah, okay, there's some use cases for microservices, but they're horribly complex. They're very difficult to monitor. They add multiple layers to development, test, integration, opera, you know, um, as well as production, and all to only mac uh, maximize a couple of quality attributes. They don't help you with usability. If you have a customer usability problem, microservices aren't the solution, right? Mm -hmm. So again, this sharing of best practice, this understanding of the, of techniques before, before we think of them as the way to do it. So for five years, we've heard microservices is the only way to build systems because that's the way Netflix does it. That is our failure. That is where we need to grow up, right? The reason why the, vac the, the COVID vaccine is taking, has taken a while and is going to, is rolling out at a certain pace is because we don't stick things in people's arms that are going to kill them, or we try not to, right? Not to, yeah. We don't, we don't, we, we have A-B testing, we have blind studies. Yep. You know, medicine has figured out that just because something's new doesn't mean it's good for people. And that is something that we've got to get. This addiction to the hype curve is something that IT and techno technologists in general have to get over and that doesn't mean that we should be less innovative it makes us more innovative yep. because it, it means that when we're adopting something we're putting something into practice we know is going to benefit that customer we know is going to drive um, a simpler reusable architecture at the core of our integration strategy within our organization or within our supply chain or within our ecosystem right 
not just because it's a good idea or not just because it's fun to program. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I like what you're saying about microservices, but at the same time, I, you know, there's something I do want to point out there that's very interesting. As you start to get finer grained ways of doing integrations, right, and managing mm -hmm. them, and not that we have all the problems sort of solved yet, along with that comes a different way of looking at the problem. I can release functionality in a finer grained way. I can release it, you know, I can talk more about agile development from a business sense. And as you start to connect and converge with different technologies, I think we're going to see a lot of changes, you know, uh, you know, the adoption of microservices. But to your point, it's also important to understand the limitations of those technologies, right? And I, I mean, I just want to do a quick overview of the landscape today as we're talking. I think there's, there's some technologies that I, I want to cover that are really going to be more impactful that we know about. Like when you talk about innovation, probably the most interesting technology is the one we don't talk about today. It's the one we haven't envisioned that's going to come up tomorrow, but gotcha. but there's a whole bunch out there right now, and they're coming together. Like I, I, you know, I'm very intrigued. You know, you start to look at something like 5G, and how you know latency starts to go down to connect networks, gather sensory data, pull in Internet of Things with that. Start to talk about control situations that maybe leverage artificial intelligence and augmented reality. So it's not just one innovation; it's this whole, you know ensemble of innovations uh, we're talking about things like distributed ledgers blockchains augmented reality and of course you know one of one of the things i think is sort of this dark horse that's going to come up really quick is quantum computing right so when you look at all this stuff i, I mean people are you know i think iot is like more on the front lines right how is architecture changing to handle some of these things like 5g do we have the right principles or do we have to redesign them um you know, what's going to happen with 5G? Are we qualified to bring it in as architects? Uh, 5G, uh, well, you know, we said the same thing with 4G. What, what, what 4G has given us is effectively a lot more data to deal with yes. of different types, uh, which is effectively what you're talking about in IoT. Now, I want us to think about IoT not, though, as sensors, but as actors as well. Uh, you know, so, so again, we're, atta we're attaching... The, the, the thing that makes me the most excited about 5G is effectively device independence, um, that our digital identities will emerge, uh, as well as our, our, our digital, effectively digital avatars, right? So I don't think of sensory data only. I also think of actions and things that act on my behalf, yes. right? Now, 4G has given us plenty of connect connectivity. I, I, I don't, I don't really wish, I mean, look at our, you know, we're, you're in, you're in Canada and I'm in Amsterdam and we're having a lovely conversation yeah. and mostly speaking, you know, there's no latency and, uh, you know, we're, 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 I, I see you clearly. I mean, give me an augmented reality experience and that's something fundamentally new. Speed this up. I don't know that that really fundamentally changes the nature of our conversation. What it does allow us to do is feed additional information from multiple environmental factors into that metadata wise, um, you know, sensory wise, uh, you know, in other kinds of facets. Um, but the speed, the speed alone gives us new or more types of data. 
That's a great point. I think with 5G, I just want to, you know, there's really, I think two of the protocols are really, two of the three protocols that are being implemented really deal with this idea, I think, first of all, with sensory data, low power type devices that are going to be ubiquitous and everywhere. And the other part of that is low latency, and that changes the game dramatically. Now, we're starting to enable like control systems, not just gathering data and having something remote, but actually maybe using AI in a control system interactively now. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the fundamental, uh, I guess, use case or business case of 5G is the, the self-driving car, right? Which is yep. something something like, the I don't know, one of the, I think one of the Wired um, articles I read uh, said it would have something like eight terabytes of data to process at any, uh, for any mm, mile, I want to say it was mile. I, I, don't quote me on that or don't repeat me or whatever, or at least don't blame me because I don't remember what the-, the It's the, too late. It's was. too late. We recorded it, you, Paul. It was, it was a very small segment of self-driving, right? Yeah. That, that To create something like eight, uh, four to eight terabytes of data or deal with and interact with. So uh, low latency and, and, and high data volume uh, abilities allow us to do things like that that don't fix connectivity problems though power outages you know i mean we're, you know we're in an era of digital everything and i've and, and i'm from texas and i got a whole bunch of texans that are freezing or were so i i, I we, we have to also so we've got a lot to think about as we depend on things like that for health and human safety uh, we also have to consider whether or not these are good ideas. Yes. You know, I don't want the local, uh, you know, I walk by, okay, across from my house in Amsterdam, there is a coffee shop. There are a whole bunch of people I see, you know, I look out my window and I'm drinking my coffee in the morning. Yep. And I see a whole bunch of people going in there. I don't want the system to know you know, it, 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 they definitely don't want the system to know when they buy their weed, right? I mean, let's get real. I don't want myself recorded and and all of that telemetry about my life necessarily uh, to exist all the time, right? So the connected stuff, right? Do we want self-driving cars? Do we really, really want them? Yes. Why? What happens when, so in, in self-driving car scenario, right? When one person is drunk, that's one fatality or, or worse, if they do something really bad, it's more. When a software bug in a self-driving car software system goes bad or gets hacked, it's 500,000 cars. So Paul, this is a great point and it, it takes us right into artificial intelligence, I think. Hey, yeah. So there, the first part, I see a few parts of this. The first part is the failure mode. Technologies are going to fail. We want them to fail gracefully. Like if if that if those cars go down, I want them to stop driving, not all of a sudden go crazy and start hitting each other like, you know, bumper cars, right? So failure mode is really big. And then the other thing that you touched on there, and again, this hits artificial intelligence, gathering information. And I think it's the biggest criticism right now of a lot of the social platforms is what about data privacy? And we're, we're seeing discussions around that. So, you know, you know, a lot of information to do AI is required. So we have unprecedented volumes of data coming into our AI systems. 
But at the same time, we have unprecedented volumes of data that can be used to manipulate people, control them, maybe in un unintended ways, right? And I don't want to, so I mean, this is a talk on innovation and I absolutely, utterly, 100% believe in innovation. It, you know, technology can save the planet um, in so many ways, right? Everything from better healthcare to better, cheaper healthcare, all the way to, um, you know, to, in, you know, decreasing poverty. Right. Um, so I'm all, I'm all about it, right? But there's a difference between what, and we, we teach this when we teach the ethics portion of our class, uh, which, you know, is something that I'm deeply passionate about, which is there's a difference between what you have the right to do and what's right to do. Yes. Right. And so, and that is becoming a public debate, you know, and I always talk about the, I mean, it, it, it's like you're saying, so we talk, there's a lot of organizations, there's a lot of organizations right now working on effectively self-describing AI um, because, you know, you know, AI at the edges, AI control systems, AI HR systems. There was a wonderful article recently about um, basically AI interview tools in HR processes, lots of people applying for a job and they give you, a, basically what they do is send you a link to apply for the job, but it's no longer just a resume that somebody reads. It's a, you, you submit your resume, then you do this little thing online and a system decide, an AI system decides to forward on your resume or not. Yes. Actually, you know, again, I, I'm not into doomsday scenarios. I honestly believe that any system that humans invent uh, will mimic human, both human, uh, and we see this. It's kind of, uh, I think it's a, it, it was a Heinlein quote, actually, if anybody's a sci-fi fan. It basically says that any human uh, system or any system created by humans will mimic humans' uh, failures as well as humans', uh, you know, um, the pros and our cons, basically, yep. right? It's kind of Con Conway's law, but for, you know, AI, I guess. And the, uh, the, the, what I thought was great, what, what I think is going to happen is I think we're going to innovate ourselves into a, a few more plane crashes before governments are going to go, okay, there's a, there, we're going to create classes of systems, and those systems are going to have to have specialized people work on them, Right. People that have had 15 years of study or 20, they've passed rigorous examinations. They've, you know, they're basically structural engineers, yep. right? Uh, or medical doctors or accountants or lawyers. I mean, the, humanity has solved this problem so many times. And yet in, in IT, we just reject it. We just kind of go like, no, we want to hire the cheapest people possible that know JavaScript and let's get it done. That's going. That's just going to go away, right? I mean, how many more boat? How many? How many more software systems have to impact of you know the flight path of an airplane before we go? Maybe we should not. We should be building stuff differently, and I just think that's coming. So the whether it's a year or ten years or whatnot, it's happening. The second thing, though, is we've got to fundamentally look at how we test new ideas, right? Yes. So that we can we can get innovation to market as fast as possible, but not, uh, uh, but not uh, you know uh, we don't want to hamper innovation, but we don't want to endanger people either. 
And we'd also like to find out whether or not it's a kind of a good idea at all. Yes. And then our different, you know, our different societies are going to handle it differently. Obviously, in the U.S., we have a um, we kind of have a deep belief in in well, many people in the U.S. have a deep belief in unrestrained capitalism, meaning you know we get self-driving trucks and all the truck drivers are out of jobs, and then we re- and then that's just the way the world works, and then they get trained, and right. some of them, you know, and that's a kind of a sort of um, vicious version of capitalism. Obviously, here in Europe, it's a little different, right? There's a belief in a kind of protective uh, quality to it, uh, et cetera. In Asia, there's fundamentally different beliefs, a much more government-controlled uh, activity. So we're going to handle innovation differently in different cultures as well. All of that still resides on the shoulders of a group of people that know what they're talking about. So well, that's interesting. Innovation in different cultures, really? Can we really do that with a globally, you know, a world converging or at some point, do we need to have some standards, even with the architects, do we need to have some international standard that, because really there, a system in India versus Canada, I, I'd be hard pressed to see the difference. Like bad code is going to kill people either way, right? Uh, yeah, but they'll de- deal with it differently in both countries and you can't litigate. Uh, there's no global court that, that will affect that currently. There's no way to litigate a, and or uh, legislate globally. And so it doesn't really matter if we think we want it. It's these things are culturally based. Um, you know, what is terrifying to an American may be absolutely a welcome and wonderful thing to someone in Asia, right? So we, uh, there was much to do made about the, the sort of social monitoring system that was, that was rolled out in, in China, right? Yep. And I, I have friends that's, uh, you know, friends in, all, all over the world, uh, some of which have said, yeah, but that makes me feel safe. And some of which have said, that makes me feel like I'm, uh, you know, uh, like the government is literally, you know, p- the, invading my privacy. Yeah. Uh, that is a huge debate. And, in, and, and it's going to be a cultural one. Right. And it's going to be decided by governmental factors that can't be controlled. And, you know, I mean. Now you you you'll see the we see the rise, the rise of of and power of a company like Amazon or a company like Google or historically, powerful rises come with powerful falls, and powerful clashes, and ultimately, those things will be determined in fundamentally difficult ways. Right? I, I mean. Governments are not going to allow corporations to decide at any end. Populaces and governments are not going to allow corporations to decide their privacy levels for them. The culture is going to decide it. And then they're going to elect elect officials or in whatever method officials are chosen will decide what that company is allowed to do. So I think we're going to start seeing... Uh, you know, relationships with these mega corporations and technology corporations start to be challenged. Um, and, and, and once they're challenged, I, I always say, look at it this way. The per transaction profit for a, a Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Oracle cloud provider is relatively low. If the EU, for example, uh, or the United States, requires that data stay not just in the in, in you know in the region 
but in the city or near the city in which the person resides. Uh, even in the even at the country level, the profitability of do, of of hosting a European cloud, much less a global one, goes to null because you've got to have sixty data centers instead of four. So it takes one law, and all of a sudden, the cloud innovation strategy starts looking really, really deregulated. Basically, the same thing that happened in the early, you know, the the, the 1900s related to telecom uh, and te providers, right? And basically, you end up with a whole bunch of little tiny cloud providers that, because one, you know, so any kind of this regulatory versus innovation thing is just getting started for us. And my worry is. Technologists are not geared up for this fight. We don't, we've never even thought about this kind of stuff. Like I'm all, you know, my, I'm dealing with students that they're all busy learning like Node.js and, and microservices and they have zero idea of the impact of business, uh, you know, requirements, um, you know, the, the regulatory environments, et cetera. And, 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 and they're all interrelated. So again, we're entering the fray of a much bigger debate uh, that finance entered just 60, 50, 50, 60 years ago. Medicine's been involved with for decades, hundreds of years. That, I mean, we're now in the, in, the, in, in the business of impacting lives and most technologists have just not even realized it yet. They just kind of, oh, I'm gonna code away. Well, what's really interesting is that you've got new technologies now too that are gonna change that business trust relationship. For instance, blockchain, distributed ledger. They mm -hmm. enable whole new ways of interacting. Mm -hmm. So there's gonna be a question, do we even wanna interact that way? Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, do I wanna have the single authoritarian platform owner anymore? Am I willing to live with that? Or am I gonna to start to move? Am I gonna mandate more appropriate data rules, sharing um, decentralized kinds of computing? Well, I mean, goodness gracious, I mean, what a, what a well-timed discussion about, um, crypto, well, with cryptocurrencies with the, with everything going on with Tesla, right? Yes. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I've got my own theories on why that's going on, but, um, but you know, the, the, it is a strange bet to be sure. Cryptocurrencies are really interesting. We've talked about this before yeah. because they really amount to equating energy spending it takes energy to solve these puzzles that support cryptocurrency based. Yeah, yeah interesting idea. Yeah. And so yeah. we're using more energy and this is, tr again, it's transforming the world with, you know, different problems. Right. Well, and, it, and we were talking about the notion of scarcity as well and its impact on, uh, you know, just on the, the human mind, but I, mean, I ultimately all of our financial systems now are based on Las Vegas, right? They're all based on gambles. Right. They're all based on futures and what we think is going to happen. Um, you know, so a whole group of people think that 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 the purchase of the, the, that larger purchase of Bitcoin by Tesla was um, not necessarily the greatest idea ever. So you see a sell off as of both Bitcoin and a fall in Tesla stock. That's a really weird relationship when you think about it, right? That's like that's sort of like saying, well, I mean, we, we you know traditionally we had the gold standard, but again, all financial currency values were used to be based on something that seemed to have at least the long-term intrinsic value. 
where did, I mean, when, when something loses, it goes from 52,000 uh, coins of 40,000 or something, or was it the flip 50,000 and 42,000, you know, in, a, in the space of a few days? And I mean, people lost millions just in the space of a few days, and then they get it back the next day. It just becomes mad, madness. Now, blockchain itself has all, I've been amazed at the application of it, right? In education, healthcare, the, the possible applications for um, the possible applications for patient records and for, uh, you know, identity and for, you know, anything, literally. I mean, we're, we're looking at blockchain related to someone's experience, right? So trailing a professional's uh, experiential uh, activities. So then you can say, oh, so for a, a great example of this is in medicine is you're not allowed to do an unassisted new type of surgery, right? Right. So I, I've never done a, I don't, I, let's just call it a heart transplant. Okay. Uh, I'm not allowed to go try that out. You know, <laughs> I have to be with somebody who's done that. So we can think about sort of general ledger as, a, a, you know, applications in super interesting ways that, that have nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. And, and those are the ones I think that I get the most excited about because um, mostly blockchain gets talked about in terms of the currencies. Um, but I think that the other applications are where, where we'll see real innovation. I completely agree. Like we did, a, I think, a discussion with, about RecycleGo using it in the recycling context to ensure, right. you know, in the chain of custody that you're actually meeting those needs. Nothing right. to do with cryptocurrency, right? It's yeah. an enterprise app, and there's a lot of those going forward. Let me ask, let me put something out here. This is, I think, one of the interesting things about innovation is the pace of innovation, the pace of radical innovation. A lot of people would argue is accelerating. You got, you know, Ray Kurzweil with his, you know, law of accelerating returns. Really, a lot of these things came from Moore's law, you know, which a lot of people periodically, oh, you know, Moore's law is dead, Moore's law lives. Um, I was interested in, you know, quantum computing. I saw a great discussion on it. Mm. And, and the person talking said, oh, um, yeah, that's great. But Moore's law won't apply to quantum computing. Okay. Then I, then I heard about Nevin's law, which is like, no, it won't apply. We're blowing it out the window, you know, with, with exponential increases. Um, I don't see any insight to the pace of innovation. And that to me has a couple of huge implications. It means that that color TV that I bought, you know, a year ago is worth half as much in a year than it was a year ago pretty much right so value starts to go down so a few thoughts you know crazy thoughts are we going to see an economy tied to innovation rate like you know so no i think we're going to see an, a, an economy so the, the the true economy has always been tied to work right it's always been tied to effectively the amount of labor that you can get out of a surf <laughs> i mean it started a long time ago, yeah. and it still applies to you and me, right? It is the, the, the whole economy is based off of a unit of work. Honestly, if, you know, honestly, if innovation follows an exponential curve, they will hit a point where uh, the economy will be based off of a unit of creativity. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's it. I mean, it, it will be who has an idea. That is... And in effect, we see that we see the the technical economy effect. In fact, following my prediction in that, right? And that is, that I was recently sitting with a a, a very very influential chief architect, um, 
And he said, you know, Paul, there are a thousand uh, distinguished superstar architects in the world. And he just picked that number. It wasn't that that was the, the number. We know who they are. They are rock stars. They know everything. There will be a few people that they pick to follow in their shoes. But otherwise, that's it. That's the set number. And all the companies in the world are offering them as much money as possible to trade back and forth. And they just hop back and forth between whoever offers them the most and they have whatever projects they want to work on. And I thought that's hilarious. But the, the, the idea there that, the, that, that we're following effectively a that, that the economy is following a unit of creativity and intellect is becoming where the difference between the sort of rich and poor are, right? Now, there's always been that. The rich utilized a unit of work before, but what they need now, and what everyone needs now, is the unit of creativity, right? So you're not looking for the stronger, strongest, bulkiest field hand anymore, right? Uh, you're, look you're looking for the smartest, most capable, most adaptable, most innovative individuals to lead your strategy. And yep. that unit is more important. And then we're going to see a whole class of people that are just sort of taken care of. Like, you know, there was, a, again, I'm a huge Heinlein fan. And he had a short story about this, right? Um, where he talked about the fact that effectively work was no longer needed. You just didn't, it didn't work. Like machines did most stuff. And, you know, you lived wherever you lived. There's plenty of, there's still actually plenty of space on the earth where people can live. I mean, we talk about the density of population and shortages, but that's primarily due to something that 5G may help us with, which is control systems for things like routing food to places where people need it. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the minimum payments or whatever, the, I, I never can remember, basic, basic wage, whatever it's called. Um, handing people money from the government that they can live on for free so that they don't have to do anything. The, 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 that becomes, that means that what we're really valuing in society are the people who decide to work hard, who have creative energy, artists, um, you know, uh, musicians, that kind of thing. Interesting. So it's, it's I, you know, I, that if the, that's if, if the pace of innovation continues. Now, that's not what I think is going to happen. I don't, I think, I think humans are going to come out with pitchforks and, and torches and say, you technologists need to slow the hell down. It's interesting because there's a huge argument, like let's talk about technology a little bit outside IT. Let's talk about vaccination, for instance, right? It's, it's in the news. Yep. And if you look at the third world country, probably one of the biggest contributors to longevity is vaccination. But it's also yep. reduced the birth rate substantially. You know, there's arguments that go that now that you don't have, you know, you know, your kids are going to live to adulthood, like nine out of 10 of them aren't going to die. It gives, it starts to shift cultural trends. It gives women control over their reproductive cycle that they've never had, for instance, in these countries. So it also changes the culture and slows yeah. and actually has a long-term, what's the word, a, 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 an effect that actually normalizes everything, right? Yeah. And so my fear, I guess, going into this, great points. And, I, you know, my fear is that we actually shun this technology which could have many really good side effects in terms of normalizing. Oh, I think we're going to make really stupid decisions for a while. Um, humanity is not ready for technology. 
Like we we're we're still at the stage where people think you know like their their phone is a magic box, like it uh, it you know I, I, I you know I've got a number of people that I know of that that that, that they just have no clue what they're signing up for. None. Yep. Have zero idea. Now I always I always relate this to the when I was a, when I was sort of a kid and I got my first credit card right. I had no idea what I was signing. You remember that big form that would come with your credit card? And it still does, I guess, right? And on the back is three-point type. And I was young then, so I could read three-point type, but I didn't, <laughs> I didn't do it. And even with the one when I, the, when I did look at it, okay, I mean, it was a reasonably astute young, younger person, but even then I didn't care because I was getting a credit card, right? We're all about humanity is going through is going to go through 20 to 50 years of figuring out a balance of how to deal with technology innovation. There are legislators, legislators aren't ready for it. I mean, if you watched the interactions between the, the legislators and the, in the United and our U.S. and government and Google and, uh, you know, Facebook and so the questions they ask are like, Seriously, that's your concern. Yeah. I also have a problem with the fact that most that there is no professional body, there is no independent group of practiced, experienced professionals giving advice, like you know, real advice. Yeah. Doctors in the United States are giving actual and, and everywhere are giving actual advice to legislation about the rollout of. I mean, we just went through a presidential election that was all about, or at least a huge topic was about whether or not the leader would take advice from an actual expert and real professionals, right? Yes. On COVID. Where are we on technology and self-driving cars? Yeah, where are we on facial recognition for police officers? Do you really want the cameras on the side of the street to be able to give you, to recognize you and give you a ticket because you jaywalked and put that on your record and whatever, God forbid you, you litter, you know? I mean, at what level of policing do we really want them to know about us? And that's also gonna be cultural. Like we are so far away from understanding uh, technology's impact, we're gonna screw it up big time and like i said my prediction my prediction is there are going to be huge technology riots now whether they're peaceful or harmful i don't know yep. but i think the average person is going to wake up one of these days and going and gonna go we're being screwed our lives are now run by five companies yeah you, you bring up a really good point. I'm, I'm going to sort of, there's a lot of stuff there and I, I want to hit, you know, the comments you made about say COVID and the experts. Yeah. And I find that, you know, you, so one of the things that you see a lot of is a lot of health experts are coming forward and presenting a lot of advice. What I didn't see a lot of is expertise that balanced a variety of concerns that, oh, what's the health decision? What's the economic decision? Yeah, yeah. What's the lockdown cost? And I'm wondering, I'm going to put this out, is that a role that as architects that we should have been more involved in, in that decision-making politically? Oh, good Lord. I would like to see us involved in so many debates. I mean, the, 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 my, my greatest um, desire is to see us put down our internal differences as architects. 
which is where we spend the vast majority of our time. And, and it, 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 is the, it is the single greatest frustration of my role is to see architects uh, spending time on battles that are internal to our profession, uh, as opposed to really doing some great work. Uh, one of my good friends and just somebody who I respect more than you can imagine is a guy named Lewis Curtis. And he founded the disaster re response um, group at Microsoft. Um, he, and this is not that we go out and move rocks and stuff. They actually are a technological disaster response team. They actually install technology that fundamentally helps the recovery from major disasters faster. How do people find lost children? How do you how do you get vaccine out fast enough? How you know how do you separate people? The organizational tech, the things that technology can do in very quick ways, uh, getting connectivity back up, getting businesses running, whatever those things are. And he can tell you a lot more. Great interview, by the way. Um, but, and, and I keep I keep bugging him because he's promised to take me out on a mission at one point. Um, but ultimately, this this is the kind of thing. Another good friend of, of mine, uh, Shrikant, who uh, was a chief architect, uh, he's working at Costco. That group in Seattle has founded an architect competition called the SciTac. And they are doing, they, they are actually grooming the next generation of, of architect, architects in college by giving grants through a competition that, 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 I mean, Washington State, Duke has been a part of it. That, that's the kind of thing we should be doing. We need to be getting involved in public debate. We need to be writing editorial pieces. We need to be talking about what our government is spending money on and who they're getting advice from. Yes. Right? I have a deep and profound respect for the vendor community, um, but they are a little overly powerful in terms of their influence on public opinion and their influence on our perception of technology and their influence on legislation. And I would actually really love it if we would see our engineers work, working as engineers together to change things, architects working as architects together to change things, you know, lobbying, focusing on public health issues. Um, the gentleman that I mentioned, Gar, uh, yep. he actually was fundamental in driving the Irish uh, COVID response or COVID um, tracing app that they rolled out. You know, that's the kind of thing that architects need to be focused on, not the difference between business and enterprise and software architecture. I mean, good Lord, we waste our time on silly arguments when we could be changing the world. That's actually really interesting. And as you know, architects become more um, vocal and I think more influential in this broader sphere, what I'm sort of seeing as an importance around as innovation goes forward, ironically yeah. an importance with some of the softer skills. How do I present yeah. my arguments with critical thinking, right? Yeah. Um, do, and, and, and what I'm sort of seeing is this, rel like with ISA Global, we've set up the set of competencies that an architect needs to have. And, and some of those competencies have very little to do with any technical subject, really. They're mm -hmm. about presenting viewpoints. And I think they're going to become more and more important, Paul. Oh, yeah. No, there's a, 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 well, actually, there was just a wonderful article on architecture and governance written by Dan Fain, uh, who is a uh, distinguished as well. And uh, it's all about, it, you know, he, he says, look, you know, it's, 
It's de rigueur. You have to know business. You have to know technology to be an architect. But what people are missing are people skills. And he's got a great, uh, he's got a great acronym there called SIMPLE uh, with two E's. And um, it's just okay. about, you know, it's just about how to deal with people. And effect, effectively, some, the, now there are a few truly gifted technology strategists out there that get by as chief architects and leaders without the people skills. But quite frankly, yeah, the, the human skills, the management skills, the leadership, right? The, the yeah, we, we, the, the, we, we call it, uh, the, we call it the servant leader, right? In, in our, in our course materials and the, the way we train these concepts, um, the challenger, but you're also a, you're also a, a leader, but you're not trying to be at the head of the pack. You're trying to help change. Uh, and change is painful for a lot of people in an emotive way, right? Yep. I, I, some of the biggest uh, challenges we have in adopting innovative techniques, I mean, I still think it's ludicrous that we're still adopting Agile. Like, good, I mean, how many decades is it going to take for us to adopt Agile? Like, seriously, it's not that complex. You change your funding model, you change your team structure, you change your delivery pipeline, and um, you, you organize your requirements, stories, epics, et cetera, in a, fun, in a slightly different way. But, but man, we're 20 years in, and it's still like, well, what's an agile team makeup supposed to look like? You know, it just- But it's part of that, Paul, part forward. of the problem there is the business side of it. Until the business understands the benefits of agile deployment and you know feature releases in the way that say, you know, you look at say a Microsoft when they start to deploy Windows 10 and every release is rapid, new features, quick pipelines, right? Um, I'm gonna call I'm gonna call I'm, I'm gonna call bullshit on that. I'm sorry. It, okay, you let's know hear. Because we have our culture has put the think about it. How many times do you hear the the words the business in an average day? Even now, right? The business is always right. The business knows the business. Bullshit. The business is me. If I'm a consultant, you're paying me to work for you. If I work for you, I'm the business, man. I agree. You work for you work for finance. I work for um, IT. I work for you know I don't know operations. I work for the strategy group. Why are you the business and I'm not? I'm the business. IT has an attitude problem. We are still the geeks in high school, and we're still saying, "Oh, okay." Imagine this. Imagine your finance group coming to you. You've got a budget. Let's call it a budget of. Um, I at one point had a budget of two and a half, but five million. That was about there was a, a discretionary portion of that, and then there was a uh, you know kind of a control portion of that. My finance liaison never once came to me and said, "Oh, are, are you okay with our financing mechanisms? How do you feel about you know doing uh, a budget each year?" Um, would you like to, you know, oh, I know you really want that new system. So I guess I'll, I guess I'll figure out a way to get you the money. We treat the business like they're walking on water. Half these people can't spell technology. I'm sorry. We need to take ownership and leadership and talk like business people. Now, our, 
our learning objective here isn't, I'm not talking about run over your business partner, but have you ever seen marketing and sales talk about who's responsible for that great quarter? You know, I, I always give this scenario. Yeah, you got a CEO and the leader of sales and the leader of marketing come in. They've had an amazing quarter, right? And the CEO says, wonderful job, Sally, Jane, you just kicked ass. I'm giving your, you're, 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 I'm flying you to Hawaii. You're both getting massive bonuses. We're doubling your budgets. Rock on. And Sally looks over. Thank you. You know, Karen, I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm, I, I will happily take the bonus and the trip to uh, Hawaii. But the truth is, marketing didn't have anything to do with the success. It was all sales. What you really should do is give them the budget. And see, you laugh there. You laugh there. And yet we do this every all the time. freaking day. And it uh, yeah. pisses me off to no end. It's almost like we have a mindset as architects that we're second-class citizens. No, and that gets architects. in the way of, a, and we got to go up. All of IT, not architects, all of IT. Every IT person I know of uses the words, the business, like, like they're talking about God on high, you know, um, or somebody walking on water. And I'm like, you're talking about like Joe over in accounting who can barely turn on his computer. Like he knows what a user story is or understands agile financing. No, no, no. We have to lead. Now, I don't mean that we need to get, of course, I'm, I, I speak in a hyperbola and I get very animated. And so I'm not talking about overriding, you know what, you know what, Paul, them you, up. You bring up a really good point. If you look at some of the richest people in the world right now, you know, like the leaders, you know, where are they from? They're from a technology. They understand it background. Look at Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, yeah. all these guys, Mark Zuckerberg, they got it. They weren't just business people pretending they were technologists that sort of married the two together. And they realized that business and technology weren't separate. That's a great the, point. The CEO of the future is just as often going to come from the chief digital officer or maybe more often uh, or chief in, in information officer or chief technology officer. And again, I'm, I'm not going to distinguish between that, tr that trio because too many companies have them in, you know, or different, you know, different um, structures, you know, somebody's more operational, somebody's more innovative, somebody's more business focused, whatever. But fundamentally, this, this whole uh, notion is inherent in IT right now, we think of ourselves as a replaceable service. This is the only group of people I know of that joke about, we, we joke about sort of, oh, we guarantee, uh, you know, we, we design systems the same way so we can guarantee jobs. But we're the only group I know of that is literally trying to describe themselves as replaceable, you know, we're, and, and or not, you know, like you said, they, we really talk like second-class citizens. Yep. We train our people in a culture of you're a rock star programmer, but don't ever, ever think about the business because that's them. They're the business. We train our people like they're wait staff, right? The customer's always right. An internal stakeholder is not a freaking customer. They are a stakeholder. A customer is someone who hands you a credit card or cash or Bitcoin um, 
to buy your product, right? Yep. If we don't don't get out of the IT as a service mindset, we're never ever going to truly achieve digital transformation or digital advantage as ISA calls it, because we're always gonna be sitting in the corner going, please pay attention to us. And that doesn't, leaders don't talk that way. And that's an awesome point. So to become that leader, you know, when I look at different offerings, I'm, I want to be an architect, right? I want to take something to become that leader. Yep. Do, I, do I need to learn another framework? Do I need to learn a set of skills? What do I need to learn? So this is a, the best topic. I mean, and to me, this is where innovation, this is how you get innovation adopted, right? You want to talk about the applications of 5G? Well, that's an it depends because if you're a print, if you're a print manufacturer, 5G is going to do one thing. If you're, uh, I'm sorry, I'm pointing at things in my, in my little home studio. If you, if you're Lumix and or, you know, Canon, that's another thing. If you're, uh, you know, a lighting company, that's another thing versus a TV company versus whatever, a table making company. Um, but, but, but if you want to learn to be a leader, you have to practice leadership. You have to practice the skills involved in leading, right? You have to present well. You have to, I always say, I always say uh, owners are not born, they're burnt, right? And what I mean by that is you, you crash and burn so many times, yep. you try things, you experiment, you go out and you, you, you approach the world with enthusiasm and, and empathy, right? You yep. look at what's going on with this, with these people over here in accounting, what are they really experiencing? Oh man, that's terrible. I've got an idea and I'm going to make that idea happen. And that is where, where leadership comes from. It comes from an, a sense of, uh, of, of practice on a certain set of skills. And really some of those are about communication. They're about people interaction, right? I need to learn to listen to you. <laughs> I, I, I need to practice this one a lot better. I need to learn to listen to you, right? I need to learn to find out what your problem is, empathize with you. Uh, I need to think about you as a person, build trust with you. And building trust doesn't mean being smarter than you. It means under, it means letting you in, understanding your pain, right? right. Then I can be smart and will and they'll listen to me. So technologists often approach trust in the wrong way, right? They, you know, you know, a great salesperson will ask about your kids. They'll ask about. They'll talk to you. You know, they'll talk to you about your company. They'll talk to you about your pain, and they'll 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 create trust with you. Then they'll talk about their product. IT people do it the other way. They think I'm going to be as smart as possible in front of you and show off my big brain. Right. And all you do is turn people off that way because they don't trust you. So they don't care about your, you know? So the, the point is, is we've got a, a set of human dynamic skill or competencies uh, and a framework of education that focuses on leadership challenge, you know, challenging profiles. How do you, how do you think about leadership and not, not just in the American sense, because I'm a very, I have a very American style and I'm very aware of that. Other places being a leader is more about, uh, is, is, is the opposite. It's not about standing at the head of the back. And in fact, I, I think even in American style, you know, we, we really need to learn that servant leader quality. But, um, you know, being a leader is about practicing those skills. And I think that, that we just kind of ignore them. Quite frankly, we just go, you know what? Ooh, AI. 
And, you know, we forget about leadership and humans and and connection and politics and all the stuff that actually goes into making a great innovator. So that's actually a really a, a great point. So how do I remember that? Like, do you think curriculum, like when you when you're part of ISA Global and you start moving towards something like a C2P, do those curriculums help build leaders? Um, I, you know, so I'm always the hardest on our, on us, I, you know, probably the worst sales guy for ISA in the world, because, you know, cause for me, it's never enough. Like we've never done enough. Um, oh, I'm aware. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that ultimately that probably isn't the best thing to have in a CEO, but I, it is, uh, it is, uh, in a way a good thing. Uh, but We've done amazing things in terms of our curriculum and whatnot. And, and there's just, there's even, I mean, this year we're rolling out even more, right? Um, we've got learning shots. We've got master's curriculum. We've got training. Each one of our courses effectively builds uh, uh, on skill, skills. I mean, you know, our competency model is a, a set uh, model. But we also recognize that you have different levels in each of those competencies. And so what we try to do is effectively build leaders over time. So we may take somebody from a software developer where they've never had a chance to actually lead a team and start teaching them thing, you know, uh, things about challenging or decision-making, basically effectively rigor in how you think about decisions. So that one of the things a great leader does is they say, here's how we considered the options, right? They explain it in a clear and concise fashion. So one of the way, way things that we do is we help people make better decisions based off of multiple options, uh, as opposed to kind of going with gut or team feel. Uh, we also then may build on top of that presentation skills, you know, uh, and techniques. You know, all of these things have little fun techniques that you can pull out of books or that we, you know, that we get from thought leaders or that, you know, some of our set of Ds come up with, et cetera. Um, and then we build on those and then we help mentor. So as you know, you hit the CIDA, the CIDA P level, uh, which is our professional board level certification, you're starting to get to mentoring and, uh, and coaching, you know? So I may say, you know, you, you, what you need to do is speak a little more often. What I'd like you to do is speak at a couple of conferences or, uh, you know, present, even internally, I'd like you to start hosting a few um, education sessions during your lunch hour and invite anybody, not because it will just be a good thing for the company, which it is, but because I'd like to see you develop that presence, right? The ability to present effectively, engage an audience emotively, engage an audience intellectually, make them laugh, be able to not stare at your slide. You know, you've seen that person kind of going like, and this is our architecture and, you know, and, you know, and, and, but really stand tall. Yep. And um, especially, you know, I, I, I miss in-person classes so much. I miss them so much because in in-person classes, we really get to get into these, um, these dialogues, right? Where we can challenge somebody and say, okay, I'm going to be the CIO and I just walked in on your meeting now. What are you going to tell me? Give me three points. Why are you going to, why is it three? Not five, yep. you know, and and it goes into uh, the science of the way the human mind works and the way yep. we remember things, et cetera. So yeah, so we really do try to develop um, architects as as leaders, not as managers as much, but as as true, you know, as true kind of 
I, I think of leaders as somebody that you follow, whether you get paid to follow them or not. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really great thing because innovation doesn't happen in a vacuum, Paul. Like that's, no. and you need to work with people. It's the way it's going to be, right? I will say uh, we should talk about you know what uh, sustained. I mean, I am I'm, I'm thrilled with things like like GitLab and 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 GitHub and you know yep. uh, some of those kinds of things where effectively you know we get kind of open and open source where we've gotten this sort of open innovation quality. I. I love the open innovation movement, the really the, the organizations that are starting to adopt. Uh, that's something that we haven't talked about really at all, which is how do I develop an innovation practice? Well, that's... And that's, a, that's, I think, a whole segment in and of itself because you know, you've got everything from open innovation where you, see, where you see companies. I mean, I was so impressed with AstraZeneca when they, they built um, an, uh, you know, an open innovation hub where really they basically said, here's a problem we're trying to solve. Anybody in the world can solve it and you know, we'll reward you for that. Um, and you know, you'll become a part of, the, of the, winner, the winning solution. I think that these kind of, you know, uh, learn, uh, creating an innovation culture, uh, anyone can have an idea, anyone can win from an idea. You know, I mean, if you think about some of the great- It sort of goes outside the corporate boundaries to get more, it's going back to the art as in the individual. Yeah. And you were talking about that point of creativity, getting them involved in those platforms. And we always think of it, you know, I always think of, um, what was that What was that, that movie about the mathematician, uh, the, the mathematician, I think it had- A Robin Beautiful Williams Mind. Uh, no, 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 no. He was just crazy. I liked that, that one for just because just, just he was nuts and that was the best. But no, I was thinking about um, uh, the one where the one where he's uh, he's kind of a punk kid growing up in Boston, but he's just really smart anyway. And he's like a janitor at Harvard and so starts solving problems. Um, I, I, it, I, you know, I always forget things, but either way. We have to think about, so architects, I think we, we get the science of innovation down, but part of the science of innovation is that great ideas come from everyone. I think and, you're right. Great ideas come from everyone. And as you know, even in business model innovation, you know, Osterwalder would bring up this point. It's not just one business model. It's a lot of business models, yeah. a lot of ideas and, and filtering them, having a lot of people. And I think we get, I think we get over, we've been, always been so overwhelmed and so under, I mean, I, I will admit IT has been kind of the, 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 the what do you call it? The, the unpopular kid on the, you know, on the internal leadership team for a long time, right? Well, it's let's like, face it, we've been a liability, not an asset until recently. Now, see, we've thought like a liability. Ah, good point. Good point, Paul. That's, 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 see, this is the whole point that I've been making is, uh, I got my first chief architect title a long time ago because I innovated in a way that other people didn't, you know, yep. we think like a liability. That's why we're a liability. I mean, everyone at the company has, gets a salary and we all know that the biggest, you know, that the biggest cost of a company is payroll. Everybody's a liability unless they're doing something fundamentally to drive wins. I, you tell me in the last four, 30 years, any finance department that can run without technology. And I'm, I'm not talking yesterday. I'm talking 30 years ago. Yep. Right. I don't care if you're talking EDI. It's just we've always our mindset has always been, oh, they're the business. So they're they're awesome. And we're not 
You know, you cannot approach, you can't be a part of a leadership team if your approach is, oh, when you smart people figure things out, just let me know and I'll get it done. That's like, you know, it just doesn't, humans don't function that way. So we've always thought like a liability. That means that all of the math in IT is done as if it's a liability. What do we, what do we try to optimize? Cost, not revenue, cost. Yep. So again, I go back to that marketing and sales thing. You know, both of those people in, in that meeting with the CEO are going to say, nah, sales did all the work. And the marketing person's going to go, nah, marketing did all the work. Right. They're fighting for their innovative capacity. But but to your point, Paul, as a consultant going into a company, yeah. the big wins are in revenue. The big wins are strategic. They're not in cost optimization, right? Um, so, so, so I, bet I once heard a CEO say the, the, the smartest thing that I, and I think every IT person, like should it should be the first class. It should be at the beginning of every JavaScript class and everything. And that is saving money is just your job. Making money is what I reward, right? So I want the, the, the scenario was effectively, you know, the, we keep talking about, well, if we just had executive sponsorship and I heard this wonderful story of a CEO that said, look, everybody in the company would benefit from my sponsorship, everyone. The, if I pick a janitor and say, I think he's the most awesome person in the world and super innovative, everybody in the company is gonna start listening to that janitor. He asked the question, what do you think I, who do you think I support? Who do you think I give my executive sponsorship to? And I, I go, and he said, the people that don't need it. The people that are doing the, that are making miracles happen. The people that are delivering innovation, they get my full throated support and all the budget they want because I don't have to sponsor them. They're not begging for money like they're nobody. They're out there making big wins. And I realize as an investor, that's, I want to back winners. I want to back people who are already winning. And that is innovation at its core, right? This is what we've been doing now. And this is what I love about the Bezos examples, et cetera, and the Airbnbs. Now we've just got to get that thinking inside of banks, inside of insurance companies, oil and gas, and, and, and non-technology companies. You know, we are innovators. We are the business. Get it done and go get it done. And to, you know, to the point, a non-technology company, I don't think there was going to be such a thing going forward, really. Well, there's a, there hasn't been one for 20 years. Yeah. I'm sorry, the dairy industry is being digitally disrupted. That's milk and cows, man. Like we've, we've been like, it it is just us. We're the ones that are late to the party going like, Oh, and I get it. We're introverts. Many of us, right. I I totally understand. I'm, you know, I, I, I I get the sort of INFJ personality, uh, but still we're the ones changing the world and have been for years years we're just waking up to that fact and we need to just that that means we need to start acting like it now again i want to say last time i am not saying walk into your next meeting and go like i'm smarter than all of you so shut up right but we have to act like business people now we are the business right we are the business we've been the business we just haven't realized it and we started once we realize it everything starts to change awesome